What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite philosophy, history, mythology, and how these subjects bubble up into our popular culture storytelling podcast. My name is Derek, and I am very excited to be here on this most auspicious of first 2020 episode of 2020. That made no sense. We are here. We are back. It is a new year. We are ready to podcast. We have picked a good one to kick off this year. We have picked an episode that has been long overdue. We are going back to our childhood's favorite millennials, and we are mining one of our favorite narratives from the 80s. You know it. We all know it. We can all sing it if we need to, because every once in a while... There's something strange in the neighborhood. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. We're talking Ghostbusters, y'all. So suit up in your gray Dickies work suit and strap on your proton pack because we are going to New York City. Ghosts are ravaging the Big Apple and somebody's got to do something about it. And those guys are the Ghostbusters. We're here to talk about them tonight. It should be a ton of fun. I can't wait. Uh, And welcome to 2020. Happy New Year, listeners. We are so happy that you are here with us in the, I think this is the third year of the Midnight Myth podcast. Yeah. Uh, So this is an exciting and momentous thing for us. We're happy to be here. We're happy you're on this journey with us. For those of you that started from the beginning, thank you from my bottom heart. For those of you who found us along the way, thank you from my bottom heart. We have the best podcast listeners out there, and I can't wait to talk this movie with you tonight, Laurel. I can't wait to show it with you, dear Midnight Myth listeners. This is going to be a fun one. There's a ton to say. This movie came out in 1984. We're going to talk the original Ghostbusters. We're not going to talk the Ghostbusters cartoon. We're not going to talk the Ghostbusters comics. We're not going to talk Ghostbusters 2. We're not going to talk about the Ghostbusters reboot remake that happened. And we are somewhat inspired by the trailers for the new Ghostbusters movie, which got us kind of orientating, orientating, not a word, got us meditating around the Ghostbusters. We've rewatched the first movie a few times. We've rewatched the second movie a few times. And I think we're going to have some interesting things to kind of pull out and extrapolate and meditate and discuss with you all tonight. Couldn't be more excited about it. But before we roll up our sleeves and get too heavy into work, Laurel, if people want to reach us, if people want to give us their attention or even more of their money, how can they do it? Well, we would love to hear from you on any of our channels. The best place to do so is Twitter. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, and I am constantly on that platform waiting for somebody to reach out and tell me what they think of the podcast, uh, and I will respond. Uh, But if you want to get in touch with us anywhere else, we have a contact form on our website. Uh, We have Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and you can also on our website sign up for our email list where you'll get uh, no more than one email a month from us. That's midnightmyth.com. Uh, That's also a place where you'll find blog content and other information about the show. You can find a link to our Patreon if you were inclined to support us financially. And you can also find our merch store if you want a fabulous Midnight Myth shirt or a tote 
or a phone case or a onesie for your baby. We have everything for you at midnightmyth.com. Uh, and one of the greatest ways that you can support us here in the new year doesn't cost any money. It just takes five minutes of your time. Leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us get out there and continue to grow in our third year of podcasting. All right. So on with the show, should we start with the briefest of briefest of recaps? Do you want to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Let's just remind people what happens in Ghostbusters. Yeah, because maybe it's been a minute since you've seen it. Obviously, spoiler wall for the 1984 Ghostbusters movie. But let's talk about it. So Ghostbusters is essentially about three paranormal psychologists slash scientists, Peter Venkman, Ray Stance, and Egon Spangler. And they get disgraced and kicked out of the university as they are trying to hunt for, find, capture, and prove the existence of ghosts. It is uh, Bill Murray's character, Peter Vickman, who gets the idea to leverage his colleague Ray's ancestral family home with a triple mortgage to fund their ghost capturing business. It's in this uh, sort of path where they meet uh, uh, Dana. Dana is a choir player who sees a vision of a dangerous looking dog juxtaposed to a pyramid in her refrigerator who says the word Zool. She goes out to seek the Ghostbusters' help, and in this, they start researching this mystery. Meanwhile, an explosion of ghosts happened in New York City, making the Ghostbusters one of the hottest commodities in town, and also making them a nationwide media sensation. They're on Larry King, they're on guest shows, they are getting profiles in famous magazines, they are a smash hit. They're so busy, in fact, that they have to hire a fourth Ghostbusters by the name of Winston, who comes on to help them out. All of this culminates when they meet a character named Peck, who is part of the Environmental Protection Agency, who wants to inspect the ghost-containing grid and is concerned about noxious fumes coming from it when Peter Venkman says, you are not allowed to inspect our premises on any grounds or for any reason. He comes back with a court order, shuts down the power grid, releasing out all of the ghosts that they have spent the entire movie capturing. This is happening simultaneously where Dana and her friendly accountant played by Rick Moranis by the name of, I can't remember. Lewis. Lewis, thank you. By the name of Lewis, both get inhabited by the spirits of two dog creatures in which they meet up, maybe copulate, and bring about Gozer the Destroyer an ancient deity that is here to destroy New York and presumably all human life. The Ghostbusters have been arrested by the EPA. They appeal to the mayor for the opportunity to actually defend the city. In appealing to his self-interest, they say, if we save the city, you'll be the mayor who has saved all of the registered voters. They, though, that they go then and confront Gozer. It doesn't go well as they inadvertently summon the form of their attacker, which is the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, realizing they must use their proton packs to cross the streams, something which would supposedly cause nuclear Armageddon, actually reverses the polarity, sends the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man slash Gozer back through the portal, ending the threat, and a huge parade happens, the Ghostbusters having saved the city. You might say that Marshmallow was toast. At the end of the day, wouldn't you? You might say he was. Great recap. Thank you for uh, revisiting the beloved movie of our childhood and letting us know, just getting us caught up. Briefest of briefest of recaps. We have watched this movie several times in the preparation of this podcast. We've been thinking about it a lot. I'd like to kick off a question for you. And this is something I'd like to do when we revisit works of art, media, pop culture that matter to us when they are young. You've now watched it from a 2020 contemporary lens. You're a professional podcaster. You have one of the most trained analytical eyes in all media and media savviness that I know. Oh, stop. Laurel, does this movie hold up? Okay, so yes. Uh, there are some elements of this movie that do not in a very big way. I am mostly thinking of the bizarre sequence during the like Ghostbusters success montage during which... Uh, Ray, played by Dan Aykroyd, gets uh, fellatio from a ghost, apparently. He gets a spirit blowjob. Yeah, and that is one of the strangest sequences I have ever seen in my life, uh, and I cannot believe it was in that movie. Every time I watch it, I'm like, is this still there? Did I imagine it? And I didn't. It is really there. 
Uh, other than that, Peter Venkman is a bit of a creep uh, throughout most of the movie, but he mostly redeems himself. Besides those things, this movie is just amazing, right? Like, this movie is like nothing else. It is so strange, so out there, so brave, so creative, so fast-paced, funny. The effects are, like, fine. Uh, you know, they're almost campy and enjoyable at this stage, even though they're not, you know, uh, 2020 level quality. I, I just think it's, it's got so much going for it and nothing like it was ever made uh, prior and nothing like it will ever be made since. It's just nuts. Yeah, I do think it's one of those lightning in the bottle moments exactly. where the right amount of creative voices had reached the right amount of popularity to go to studios and be like, we need $30 million because we want to make a comedy about catching ghosts. And they were just famous enough to be like, okay. Okay. We'll, we'll let you do that. I mean, when you think about the content, it really is the equivalent of crossing the streams. You know, a special effects driven comedy that was also about the supernatural and had just these wild and crazy ghosts and uh, this sort of sex comedy element and this Sumerian god at the heart of it, just completely bizarre, should have imploded in on itself and instead just launched a worldwide phenomenon that today is still something that people flock to, a pop culture property that is so deeply beloved. Yeah, if you go to a Halloween party and they're not playing the Ghostbusters soundtrack, don't hang out at that party because that's a staple. Everyone has to hear it at Halloween. Yeah. You know, it, it is so embedded in our culture that all you got to do anywhere at any time is just look at someone and go, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Everyone will say Ghostbusters. It is a pro prolific and truly unique experience to grow up in the time of Ghostbusters and to see how much it's reverberated throughout our lives and how much that still exists. There's still a huge admiration and love for this piece of media. Um, the one thing that I thought in terms of just looking at it from the contemporary lens, and I think you hit everything, there were a few special effects that even on the 1984 lens, I probably spend a little too much of my time watching movies from the 80s than I should. But even from the 1984 lens, we're like, all right, that looks a little cheaper. Right. Yeah. Than, like this than is most. coming out in the wake of Star Wars. So it's got a high bar. Specifically, I would say once we see the dogs, um, especially the one that chases Lewis, that becomes the key, the key maker. When it's running around through New York, I'm like, all right, that just does not even remotely look good, even at the 84 standard. But that's just really trying to be super nitpicky. Even as such, I, I would still say it's as close to a perfect movie as there is. Right, right. It is really just uh, something that will always, always bring a smile to my face. It's like perfect movies are The Godfather and Ghostbusters. <laughs> you know, And The Princess Bride. And The Princess Bride. Yeah, yeah those are the top three. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little more analysis then. I tend to think we should start kind of with the title and the basic premise here. Okay. Who are these guys that we're following? The Ghostbusters. The Ghostbusters. Right. And what do they do? They bust ghosts. They bust ghosts. For money. Yeah. So uh, while this seems like a premise that one maybe created out of thin air because it sounded like fun, uh, there is a rich history of things like ghost busting uh, in America and across the world. And I would love to discuss some of that and the tradition that that comes out of, if that's cool with you. Boom, let's do it. Open it up. What is the historical, actual, real-life basis for ghost busting? So the idea of an afterlife or that our bodies become spirits uh, after we die that may walk the earth or not is not a new conception. It is something uh, that has been almost culturally universal since civilizations first started to come together. There's been this belief in the supernatural or an afterlife and the spirits of the ancestors or the dead. So you can look at all kinds of cultures that had ancestor worship as part of their uh, early rituals, and those are things that have survived today in many cultures that still venerate their dead. I'm thinking of things like Dia de Muertos uh, or All Souls Day in the Western Christian tradition, where we continue to venerate the souls of people who have passed beyond the veil. But the tradition I want to draw some attention to with regard to Ghostbusters is a much newer one, and that's called spiritualism. 
There's a few reasons that I want to talk about spiritualism, the biggest of which is that Dan Aykroyd, who of course plays Ray Stance in Ghostbusters, but also co-wrote the screenplay with Harold Ramis, is a noted spiritualist. His family has been part of the faith for generations, and his father literally wrote the book on ghosts. He wrote a book called A History of Ghosts. So what is spiritualism? Uh, most people will trace its origins back to uh, Rochester, New York, or just outside of Rochester, New York, in the uh, mid-19th century, with two women named Maggie and Kate Fox, known as the Fox Sisters. These young women started hearing knocking and tapping in their house when they were kids, and fabricated a kind of a story around this entity that was haunting their home uh, and really made it big, made the newspapers. And people were like, these kids can, con can communicate with the dead. So they started holding seances uh, where they would bring people into a parlor and employ a number of uh, tricks in order to convince these people that they were communicating with someone beyond the veil. Now, there was some speculation as to whether or not the Fox sisters were the real deal. Uh, they eventually came clean and said everything we did was a trick. It was, it was all fraud. And then later they recanted that admission. So it is still a little bit um, unclear with them. But they did start a huge trend of charlatanism in this trade where people would hold these seances and start knocking under the table or... Uh, doing other tricks to make people think that ghosts were manifesting in the room. But the faith itself of spiritualism is really based in just a couple of basic principles. So number one is the belief in an afterlife, that kind of ancient belief that when we die, it's not the end. Uh, number two is that you can communicate with that afterlife. So anyone could communicate across the veil with someone who has moved on, there are some people who are more predisposed to do it, and those people are called mediums. And the last part of it is that this life, us here on Earth, is just our preparation for the afterlife. So we're here to groom ourselves to become better people, to become higher uh, of character and a higher form of consciousness in the next life. All right, so if I understand it, it is a loosely based on... Um, Christian principle is it? Well, is it like a Christian religion, or is it? It's simply just there is an afterlife. We can communicate with it, but there's no like God or savior figure. Right. Yeah, that, that's a good distinction to draw because what's interesting about uh, spiritualism is that it's not incongruous with a lot of other faith traditions, and because of that, uh, later it sort of syncretized with Christian traditions or with other religions or, um, you know, faith philosophies like theosophy, it grew in a lot of different directions because it could be incorporated into other religions. But it was really part of the, uh, the Second Great Awakening and these religious revivals that were happening up in New York State uh, well after the creation of the Union. A lot of people were still coming here for religious freedom, and the communities that were built up around that were whipped up into kind of a religious fervor, and that created things like Mormonism and Christian science and spiritualism all out of the same kind of energy that was happening up there. Interesting. And so whatever religious beliefs that you hold, however you are praying to whatever God you're praying, that is still leaves room for one to go to a seance and try to talk to the dead. Absolutely. And people who practiced spiritualism kind of as a pure faith maybe didn't hold those beliefs, but it certainly grew that way over the course of the next century. But it's also mixed in with frauds, right? It's mixed Absolutely. in with people manipulating to make money, saying they can talk to ghosts when they really can't, and like imploring lots of cheap tricks yeah. to confuse and dazzle people, which is interesting because that's exactly what Walter Peck thinks the Ghostbusters are doing. And that's the lasting kind of impression or reputation of spiritualism because the Fox sisters set this precedent for fraud uh, and for trickery. And because so many mediums, we're talking about hundreds of mediums within city limits. Uh, we're talking about people on every corner who you could go to and get a show or talk to your dead parent or have some sort of supernatural experience that has left this sort of cloud over 
a lot of people who genuinely believed in this or thought that they had psychic ability or even just felt like this was a, a thing that they could believe in that would help them become better people. So uh, just kind of an interesting tension there. If we look at the faith itself, it was fairly organized in the 19th century. Uh, the first association of spiritualists was established right here in Philadelphia, where we record, in 1852, and they ratified their own constitution in 1864. This constitution is interesting because it affirms their principles, and one of those principles is that uh, the the afterlife or the, the supernatural or the, the next level is revealed to them through science. So they were always affirming science as the way to understand the natural world and the uh, supernatural world. So it was always kind of integrated there. While we may think of spiritualism and ghosts and the afterlife and the supernatural as just this totally non-scientific endeavor, at least these early spiritualists were interested in integrating it. And uh, that's very interesting. Yeah. In, in particular, how it pertains to Ghostbusters. Yeah. Because we have three, well, two scientists and one person trying and to one get rich. Peter Venkman. Yeah. yeah. And one Peter Venkman who really genuinely believe applying the scientific method to the paranormal and to ghosts. And, you know, it, in my preparation for this podcast, is I, I felt that initially there was a, you know, an epistemological conflict in the world of Ghostbusters. And that conflict I saw was the conflict between the supernatural and the scientific method as two different fundamentally opposing ways to look at the world and try to understand how phenomenon happen. And the interesting thing is that Ghostbusters combines these two opposing views, which seem like they shouldn't work together and they work together really well which got me thinking, is there a scientific basis for ghosts? Which is interesting that the religion that Dan Aykroyd believes in has this component built in. So you start to see how they came up with this. But thinking about what's the scientific basis with ghosts, spoiler warning, there really isn't one. Right. And so um, anyone who's tried to scientifically prove the paranormal has been unable to prove that it exists. But... If it did exist, if ghosts were real, they would be interacting with our environment, which would means the laws of physics would have some application to them. So they would do things like leave a residue yeah. that we see, like ectoplasm. Or they would disturb the electromagnetic field. And you would be able to, based up upon their particle makeup, potentially trap and hold them right. the way we see in this. So if ghosts were real they would be at least in part bound to the laws of physics to some degree, which is the way that Egon and Ray figure out how to contain trap, which then sets off their business to, hey, we'll find your ghosts and we'll trap them and we'll treat them like they're a pest, yeah. which is really interesting. And the, the fun part about it is they don't dig any deeper into the philosophy of like, hey, ghosts are real. We can all see them. What does this mean for us as people? The closest that we get to it is when um, Ray and uh, Winston are riding an Ecto-1 and Winston thinks of the religious implications. That's and, one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. And they talk about the book of Revelations and that maybe they're living in the end times and that's why they're so busy catching ghosts. That's the only time where there's like a pause and a reflection about what does this mean that there's these ghosts and we can actually you know, trap and contain them. Right. Cause it's like, we've got exterminators here and they have the tools to get rid of the ghosts. So why do we need to ponder on the philosophical implications of this? Let's, eh, just, let's just get them money. out of the way. Like uh, if you've yeah. got cockroaches, you just want the cockroaches gone. You don't need to know why cockroaches exist. You just got to get them out of here. Uh, and a lot of this comes from spiritualism, right? So this is uh, this started as a, a religious movement, but as it grew into a more organized form, one of the branches that was born of it was parapsychology. So people you see today holding EMF meters, I mean, if you're watching Ghost Hunters, you're watching just entertainment that's making a bunch of stuff up for you, but parapsychology comes out of spiritualism because there is a branch of people who want to more rigorously apply the scientific method to the study of the paranormal. So in 1882, the Society of Psychical Research is founded, 
And that paves the way for major universities like Duke and other really prestigious institutions to have, uh, you could major in parapsychology in applying the scientific method to researching phenomena like ghosts. But these people who were involved in parapsychology here in the 19th century were some of the people who were most involved in debunking the frauds who were clouding up spiritualism for them. So this is all coming from inside the same movement. They're like, these bad apples who are spoiling it and who are exploiting it and turning it into a business deserve to be exposed because they are polluting what I perceive as a pure endeavor. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that kind of ties into when I found, hey, what's the scientific reason for ghosts and the, the, the list of possible explanations for phenomenon where people think or do see ghosts. And there's a few set uh, general guidelines of usually what these phenomenons are. Um, would you mind if I shared? I would love to hear. I love these. So the first one is that any place, most places rather, where a scientist goes to study that's known to be haunted, where there's a lot of people saying they have seen or felt something um, and one of the problems with trying to study ghosts is that it's not like studying lightning. There's a set definition of what lightning is because we can all see it. We can all perceive it. And so when Ben Franklin puts a kite with a key into it, he knows exactly what he's trying to do, which is, which is to understand and find out what the nature of lightning is, which leads to the discovery of electricity. Ghosts don't have a set perception. Like someone who's saying, I've been haunted, could just have a chill they could hear a sound, they could see something, they could smell something. They could just feel something. Ghosts have been described as people, they could be described as a poltergeist, which is like an interdimensional being. That could be, there are ghost stories involving trains and cars. And ships, and, yeah. Yeah, and ghost ships and things like that. So because there's no set definition of what a ghost is, it makes it really hard to study because there's no set general assumption or set perception that are, is being investigated. But that being said, when you go to a place, when scientists go to a place that is known to be haunted, they tend to find certain electromagnetic energy that has proven to have an effect on brain chemistry, which can mean uh, hallucinations, it can mean anxieties, it can mean chills, you know, so that is one explanation yeah. for a place being haunted is that there's an actual electrical force there affecting brain chemistry. Another one is, is that that can affect people is low level sounds that we can't perceive, but can have an effect on us. They can move our eyes to the point where we think we see things yeah. because our eyes are literally humming. One common uh, reason for this it can come from malfunctioning refrigerators. Yeah, appliances. So if you have like a, a, a generator or a fan that has slipped loose from its its housing, it can generate this sound that is inaudible to the human ear, but can cause this sense of dread or nausea. Nausea, it can yeah. Ears bleed, all kinds of crazy stuff. It can uh, create different perceptions in temperature where you can feel like things just got really cold because it's messing with your uh, equilibrium. Right. So, so you what, could open up your refrigerator and just hear this low-level sound, and then suddenly there's, there's a, a temple and a dog shouting Zool out of your refrigerator. Exactly. So maybe she just had a faulty refrigerator. That's probably it. We yeah. fixed it. We, we figured out Ghostbusters. Um, and there's a few other things. A lot of times it could just be, oh, this is another interesting one. They found certain types of molds in places that are said to be haunting Ooh. that can cause low level hallucinations. So people could be breathing in this mold and while they're breathing in this mold, they could be hallucinating. That helps to explain why ghosts seem to follow around Egon Spangler. Because he collects molds. Yeah. yeah. Spores. <laughs> well, and I do think the writers are probably, you know, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis are probably aware of this, which is why these things are in there, why it's a refrigerator yeah. Because I think they probably have read, if they've read the history of ghosts, and Dan Aykroyd's a spiritualist in a sincere way, not a charlatan way, he probably knows all of this, yeah. I, would, I would imagine. Yeah. But the, uh, the most commonly thought of scientific reason that people see ghosts and that can't be proven to be real, it's because they want to. Yeah. They want to believe in ghosts. But then interestingly, I found another study that showed that a lot of people who in America have claimed to have some sort of paranormal experience 
don't specifically define it as a ghost. Most will say, I saw or felt or heard something. Yeah, something I can't explain. Like a ghost, but right. they don't usually say, it. yes, it was a ghost. Though 43 Americans, according to... 43, 43 million. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. 43% of Americans, according to a 2013 study that I saw, believe in ghosts of some sort or some type. Right. Yeah. But all that being said, in the movie of Ghostbusters, the ghosts are real. Oh, yes. Interestingly enough... What I find cool about the iconography of the Ghostbuster ghosts, very few of them appear to me to be dead humans coming back. Yeah. I think in the movie you see a zombie driving a cab car. Yeah. So that's clearly a human that died that came back. Um, You see the librarian in the uh, first sequence who you would assume is you know, a librarian from the 1900s who stuck around. But the librarian then turns into a demon really quickly, like very demonic and non-human looking. Slimer is clearly not a human. Yeah, Slimer is more poltergeist-like. Gozer is certainly not a human being, nor is Zool or uh, Vince the Keymaker. Keymaker? Keymaster. Keymaster, pardon me. So they're, they're all not humans that are dead that are coming back. Which leads me to believe, like, or at least to ask, what are the Ghostbuster ghosts? Ooh, well, uh, well, that's interesting. And I think, uh, you know, this gets into a huge part of, of how the movie uh, functions, which is kind of just to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. So we have uh, an introduction to the supernatural world through the, the ghost in the library, who is fairly traditional, even though she has this kind of spook moment that's a little different. Um, From there, it kind of escalates, and we start to throw out all kinds of uh, ghost-like traditions. You were saying before how it's so hard to get a read on whether uh, we can study ghosts or not because there's uh, so little consensus about what they are, Uh, and there is such a lengthy historical and mythological tradition around ghosts, so much folklore from so many different cultures that it's really hard to integrate those things. So we kind of get all of it. We get, you know, the dead rising from the grave. We get a poltergeist-like being in Slimer. We get demons of the ancient Near East uh, and and uh, demigods. We get kind of this huge... Um, affirmation of all supernatural folkloric traditions all at once, uh, which just leads to this over-the-top bonanza, and it's super fun, but it's interesting that there's kind of no distinction drawn between there. You know, I think about my favorite show is Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and for a while it's just vampires, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, vampires are real, but we also got witches, we got werewolves, we have gods, we have demons, everything is real, let's just keep going. And it's... It's fun. It's it's kind of wild. Yeah, totally. And, and I think part of what makes Ghostbusters work so well is that it is so fucking bananas. Yeah. It's all over the place. You have a green Slimer who gives green ectoplasm everywhere he goes and does nothing but eat and drink like a glutton. That's just like, what an amazing ghost that is. And then the final boss is the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, because why not? Because yeah. why not? It's 84, it's 1984, and we're making a kid's movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we move on, I just want to say a couple more things about spiritualism, because you mentioned ectoplasm here, and I want to talk a little bit about that, just because it's kind of fun. Um, ectoplasm is something that came out of these medium seances in the spiritualist tradition uh, and was said to be the substance by which an otherworldly being or a ghostly entity could uh, interact with the physical world because they don't have physical form, they're in a different plane, but if they were going to pass through, there would have to be a substance that they're made of, and that was ectoplasm. Uh, This would usually excrete from the medium during a seance, Um, and there are different accounts of what kind of substance it is depending on the medium you're with. So it might be a gelatinous substance like we're seeing in Ghostbusters, or it might be a piece of cheesecloth that the medium has rolled up in the back of her throat and regurgitates in the middle of the seance. Um, So all kinds of fun stuff that they were doing there. There was one that I read 
they would carve up animal liver so that it would be like a ghostly hand that would find its way onto the table, or there would be rubber gloves wrapped in muslin, all kinds of crazy stuff they were throwing out here. You know, at the core of it, when you when you look at this long tradition and history of ghosts, there is this set assumption starting in the ancient world that, hey, the, this world existed before I was here. It'll exist after I was here. Clearly, I had to have existed as well. I probably existed before, and I will probably exist sure. after. And I think that is very much psychologically wrapped up in the unique position that humans have or that we are aware of our mortality. And as far as we can tell, we're the only creatures on the planet that can do that, that are aware that we are born and live and die. And that does produce a sense of anxiety, existential dread. Um, you know, if you, <laughs> and sometimes just outright depression. I was having a conversation with a physicist friend of mine. who was like, well, we're all just worm food anyway. Ugh. And, you know, it's a really dark way to look at it. And it's really, you know, can be very quite upsetting. And then in comes the narratives of ghosts. And that really does help to assuage that. Even if the ghost scares you in the moment, psychologically, I bet there is a reassuring fact it to is say, a little comforting. I know that there's something after this. And though it frightens me and it terrifies me, that I find less frightening than the thought of nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's the uh, kind of deep and primal fear that is so easily preyed upon. So these charlatans who were holding seances and pulling tricks and knocking on the table uh, were exploiting people's anxieties and were exploiting people's grief and people's fear. And there is still a tradition around exploiting that kind of grief and fear. Uh, it has absolutely continued until this day. Uh, in well, television. And, and even in Ghostbusters, the movie, yeah. of the three main characters, Peter Vickman doesn't care if ghosts are real or not. He's just in this to try to make money and pick up hot women. Right. right? That's why he's doing it. You know, and the, he likes the fame and everything, so he likes that. Of the three, only two of them are genuinely seem interested in studying the paranormal. With Peter, it's like, I can make money, be famous, get chicks, Sign me up. Yeah, and Winston kind of just wants the job. But this is kind of what I'm getting at. This is really where the heart of uh, spiritualism lies and where the heart of Ghostbusters lies, I think, which is at the intersection of uh, you know, genuine belief in science, um, a curiosity about the next life, um, a fierce religious fervor, and business and entrepreneurship and enterprise. Uh, so spiritualists and the frauds who joined their movement were like, okay, let's take advantage of this thing that is so uh, palpable and is so powerful and is so American, and let's do a very American thing with it and make it an enterprise. And the Ghostbusters are doing the same thing. So, like, honestly, if there were ghosts attacking New York or Philadelphia, like, Somebody would have to get them out of there. And yes, they should be paid for their work, but they definitely extort that guy at the hotel ballroom for getting a poltergeist out of there after destroying his Tiffany chandelier. Like $5,000 is a little much, but um, I, I just think it's, it's, it's a very American thing to, uh, to pull together uh, this kind of rational science stuff with this supernatural religious fervor and enterprise and capitalism. That's what Ghostbusters is to me. Totally. I 100% agree. And only in America. Only in America. And only in New York. <laughs> and, and it's the end of the world, too. It's the end of the world. And we're in New York because where else would you want to be than the greatest city in the world, as most people will call it? Um, and it's, it, it's so indicative of the melting pot that America is often said to be. Uh, we have a sort of sweeping view of all cultures and all kinds of people looking to the end of the world when Gozer comes. Everybody swarms the building to watch the Ghostbusters heroically come out on top. And it just feels exactly like what America would do if the world was ending. It would be a media frenzy and we would all go watch. Oh, yeah, I totally, totally agree. There is a part of the fabric of the movie Ghostbusters that I find very patriotic yeah. and very much celebrating America and American things like 
making money, the little guy versus the big government, the local mayor being better than the federal EPA guy. Right. You know, like all of these things are very much wrapped up in these American ideas. The idea of like, you know what? We got fired from our cushy job. We'll go into business for ourselves and we'll become hugely outrageously successful and popular. That's a very American idea. And, uh, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, absolutely. But let's, uh, if you'll permit a pivot, cause yeah, there's something I, I wanted to bring up here. And in many ways, this is a bit of a nitpick on the movie, but it started down when rewatching it and they were discussing the historical basis of Zool. They're finding out who Gozer was. And Egon has the line that Gozer was worshipped in 6,000 BC by the Hittites, the Sumerians, and the Mesopotamians. And I remember, if I remember correctly, I paused and I was just like, as a history guy, and I'm like, that's utter bullshit. Yeah. So I want to unpack a little bit who Gozer is and that line that Egon said and talk a little bit about ancient Near East history to put some context to it, if you'll permit me. Please. Let's go in our machine and time machine and go way back. So um, let's start with this. I tried to find if there's any historical or mythological basis for Gozer. Is Gozer a real ancient Near East or ancient Mesopotamian deity? I couldn't find any basis for it. I, I'm pretty certain they just made Gozer up for the movie, which I think is totally fine. That being said, the ancient Near East is especially from a religious standpoint, doesn't have set religious texts the way that we do now. They don't have organized churches. Every community, every person, every city-state, every empire that rose and fell, they had their own deities, their own gods, their own ways of worshiping them. Um, it isn't until the Persians around the uh, 6th century BCE, where we get the first uh, Hebrew Bible written, and it was written for Cyrus of Persia, so that he could figure out how to tax this religion that didn't want to worship him as a god. But any time before then, there's no written religious text. So yeah, could there have been a Gozer the Destroyer? Certainly. There is a mythological place to have sort of more destructive deities, deities that don't seem to help humans as much as they work against them. Uh, one great example from Norse mythology would be Loki. Loki, who is a god that no one's really going to worship because, by the way, he brings out about the end of the world. He's kind of a jerk. So you're not really going to pray and worship Loki even though he's there, which fits into this archetype of tricksters or destroyers, etc. So who were the Hittites? Who were the Sumerians? Who were the Mesopotamians? And who was around in 6000 BC? If you've studied any ancient Near East history, you know that human civilization starts around 3000 BCE. So 6000 BCE, we're still at agricultural revolution. We're just learning how to domesticate animals. We're just learning how to farm and not starve to death in winter. We don't have cities yet. We don't have civilization as we know it. So the idea that 6,000 BC there was a, a cult of Gozer is completely ahistorical and preposterous. Nobody that we know of was worshiping a god named Gozer or any gods that we know of at that time, which maybe people did have gods and, and deities and worshiping, but it's pre-civilization. There's no one writing anything down. There's no history. And there's no real community to spread this kind of information through. Well, and so I don't want to couch a few things. Mesopotamia is a place. It is a period of history. It's to, to describe the now Middle East, but in historical terms, the ancient Near East, this area where human civilization first cropped up around the in between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers um, around modern day like Iraq and Syria and these things. And one of the first cities that we know of was called um, Uruk. Now, you might recognize this if you've studied ancient mythology or ancient um, literature, because Uruk had a very famous king, the King Gilgamesh. He was the king of Uruk. It's the first known written down story in human history. The people that formed the city Uruk were called the Sumerians. They're called the Sumerians because they all shared a common language, but they had individual city-states. One of them you may have heard of is called Babylon, which is famous because it's been written into the Bible. 
And sometimes people use the word Babylonian to describe that entire area and time. Um, but the common term is either ancient Near East or ancient Mesopotamia. There are no Mesopotamians. That's not really a thing, or everyone's a Mesopotamian. So to delineate that the Hittites, the Sumerians, and the Mesopotamians all worship Gozer is ridiculous, because that's like saying the Pennsylvanians, New Yorkans, and the Americans. Right, yeah. It's like, well, hold on, we're all Americans, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. So it, it's completely ahistorical and nonsensical. Now, the Hittites were a very, very powerful group. They came from a place called Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, and they reigned and had an empire in the ancient Near East from approximately 1600 BCE to about uh, 1200 BCE. So wait, how, how far is that from 6000 BC? Thousands of years. <laughs> and the Hittites uh, were very powerful because they were really good at metallurgy and invented a thing called iron and brought about the Iron Age. Nice. The reason I nitpick on these is, one, I don't get a lot of opportunities to talk ancient Near East history, and it's a subject that I do know a little bit about and love. Um, and two, it always kind of bothers me when I see a movie, when it comes to history, that does, you know, one quarter of the research. Clearly, they picked out words like Hittites, you know, Sumerians, Mesopotamians. So they, on some level, had to find out who these th three things were. And then they just tack on a date that sounds really, really, really old. And in a way, it it couches the, the antagonist Gozer in a otherness, yeah. in an ancientness, and in a Middle Eastern far, far, farther away from America. So it's inherently non-American, and hence it's inherently dangerous, and our all-American heroes have to butt up against it. But I do kind of wish that they took that slightly more seriously and actually said, hey, around 3000 BC, the Sumerians had a doomsday cult and they worshiped Gozer. Would have been fine. Right. But when you're like 6000 BC, the Hittites, the Sumerians, and the Mesopotamians, I'm like, historical red flag here. Like, yeah, it's a party foul. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it smacks of Orientalism. It smacks of, eh, as long as we just other it in this Orient far away, then people are going to know it's strange, and then hence our, it makes sense that we have to destroy it because it's strange. you know. And it's totally okay to make up a deity, but it would have been cooler if they actually picked a real deity that people worshipped and couched it in a real place, perchance. But anyway, that was my historical nitpick, plus it gave me the opportunity to talk about the ancient Near East. Another kind of link... This movie, Ghostbusters, is very much grounded in New York, and it's a very it's a yeah. New York narrative. And the ancient Near East was a place of city-states that eventually made way to large empires. And I think it's cool because New York is the sort of focal point of this story. It's a focal point of Americanness. America is a mighty empire in many ways. And I feel like there is this sort of loose connection there. Yeah, I yeah, I think that's great. You know, this movie uh, among all of the amazing things of its legacy, all of the things that it has left in its wake, one of the things that it's credited with is helping to change the public perception of New York City, which at this point it's 1984, it's pre like Giuliani cleaning it up. There's still a crime on every corner. People don't want to visit New York necessarily, but this movie is a love letter. Like you're in uh, Central Park, you're at Tavern on the Green, you're like just sweeping through the Upper East Side. It's it's beautiful and it makes New York friendly and community-based and uh, a place that I would want to go and also a place of celebration and the, the focal point for uh, the American triumph. So there is something that this movie is saying uh, about this city that the, the creators seem to love and that has had a lasting impression. I think the points that you've brought up about Gozer are super valuable um, and this kind of historical mishmash that we get from the writing here because it is something that recurs throughout the movie. Uh, it's the uh, just throwing out of uh, anything that sounds uh, Middle Eastern enough to just put in this one pot. It's the throwing out of enough scientific terms to just say really fast and go over our heads so that we don't get distracted or enough paranormal things so that we don't get distracted. Um, it's certainly a technique that the movie employs so that it doesn't have to be you know, airtight in all kinds of ways. But one thing that 
the Gozer stuff does do is create a really interesting mythology around this character. Um, and I, I like the character the, goes her. Yeah. Okay. I like the world building that goes into it and all of the ritual that's part of bringing this person about or this God about, um, because we get a little bit of that history, even though it's a little fast and loose, we get these, uh, these two heralds or these two minions in Zul and Vince Clortho, uh, who have to perform a ritual in order to bring Gozer to this plane. And that ritual is, uh, heavily implied to be sexual. So it's a uh, a mating ritual or the act of creation, usually, that brings about the destructor god. And that, to me, does feel uh, at least thematically in line with a lot of mythological traditions. So I think about like Shiva uh, in the Hindu tradition, who is uh, sometimes worshipped as a supreme god and sometimes also worshipped as a destroyer. And those sort of dueling uh, creation and destruction energies are one. And that, I think, echoes through a lot of different traditions. Uh, so to have, uh, you know, this, this god who comes in to destroy your land but has to be brought about through the act of uh, creation and sex is very interesting. Oh, I totally agree. And you also get, there is no Dana, only Zool. Only Zool. <laughs> I can't say... I could go on all day about how much I love this movie. I mean, we're not even talking about how just genuinely funny it is and how great it is to see three really talented comedic actors in Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and uh, Bill Murray playing off of each other. What a fantastic job Sigourney Weaver does. And it's just like, it's just a pure delight of a movie from start to finish. Every second of it is fantastic. It's weird. It's amazing. It makes me laugh. It's just, there's only one and it's Ghostbusters. Yeah. And it's just good to know that this movie being so weird and also being so successful means we're all a little weird and we can kind of commune and connect over that. That's something that I really cherish about this movie is that everybody came together when it came out to celebrate spookiness and comedy and how those things can live side by side and help each other and make each other better. Amen. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, when there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? The Ghostbusters. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. something strange in your neighborhood who are you going to call he man <laughs> <laughs>